Welcome to yet another in the series of joint Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia, United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney, joint US Politics Review. Together with my counterpart at the University of Sydney, Professor Simon Jackman, who's also the CEO of that center, uh, we've been very fortunate over the last five months to each first Friday of the month review developments in the United States vis-a-vis -vis politics. We quickly found that it was impossible to do a monthly review because the events of the last 24 hours alone would more than occupy an hour of our conversation. Today, we're, we're very excited to welcome to, with Simon and I two guests to, to join us to discuss recent developments. Um, as we did at the beginning of the year, uh, we're delighted to upgrade the flakes uh, in this conversation. And we're, we're having former United States Senator Jeff Flake uh, calling in from the state of Utah right now, where he's currently resident, uh, to, to join us for the conversation. Uh, I think to most of our audience, Jeff does not need any introduction. Uh, he served for 20 years in the United States Congress for six terms in the House of Representatives, and then for six years as Arizona's senator uh, in the United States Senate. Uh, he has been a much sought after and very important voice uh, on the Republican side of the spectrum, uh, particularly given you know, the, the nature of the discourse in the United States today. Uh, we were very fortunate to have Jeff here in Australia at the beginning of the year, which was now, what, 10 months ago and 10 months and 100 years ago, it seems. That's a lifetime. In a very different world pre-COVID, uh, when all the focus was only on the wildflowers and, and uh, the election at that time seemed a long ways off. And here we are 32 days out and very fortunate to have him with us sharing his insights. Uh, we're also delighted to have Dr. Garana Gergit. Uh, Garana is jointly appointed uh, at the University of Sydney's uh, Department of Government and International Relations and with the United States Studies Center. Uh, for our perspective out here in Western Australia, we really appreciate for the last several years, Garana has been a visiting lecturer at the University of Western Australia in conjunction with the Perth US Asia Center as part of our collaboration with the United States Studies Center. Uh, Garana has recently announced that she's going to be heading to Rome next year to be a NATO Defense Scholar Resident Fellow, uh, and we've been delighted to have her insights on US politics, particularly as they're perceived internationally. And of course, Simon needs no introduction. You, you, you've been in this conversation with Simon and I for the last five months. But I would note that in addition to his role uh, as CEO of the United States Studies Center, Simon comes to us as one of the preeminent political scientists and observers of American politics. Uh, and Australia has benefited tremendously from not just from Simon's expertise, but from his network. I think in the last month alone, Thanks to Simon, we've had Mark Texter on board. We've had Courtney Kennedy at Pew. Just this week, he had Charlie Cook. Uh, and so Simon brings his own expertise in polling and American politics, uh, as well as that network, which has helped us understand uh, a, a political environment which sometimes seems to defy understanding. But our task today is to see if we can uh, help on that process. So I think, obviously, uh, if you look at the newspapers globally and in Australia, uh, there remains intense focus on the first U.S. presidential debate. Uh, if it can be called either presidential or if it can be all called a debate, that's something that we can discuss. And I thought I might start off by asking Senator Flake um, to expound a little bit on a tweet that you sent out shortly after the end of the debate. You noted, we are a better country than was on display tonight. What were you thinking? What is your reaction to the first presidential debate, Jeff? Well, I, I think it was self-evident. Uh, that was not uh, our best foot forward um, to have the President of the United States behave the way he did, to have the Vice President uh, take the bait and, uh, and respond in kind at times, and to have less of a debate than just a kind of a chaotic free-for-all. Uh, I, I think uh, you've had historians weigh in saying that this was kind of a low point in terms of uh, how Arizona, America exhibits itself before the world, um, John Meacham, Michael Beschlau, and others. Um, I mean, it, it just was, was not our finest hour. And uh, I hope that we can move beyond it. I, I know we will. Uh, it's hard to see uh, the Commission on Debates uh, putting up with uh, another debate like this. They've already said that, signaled that they will change the rules. I hope they do. And, uh, and I hope that more than anything that the the, uh, the participants uh, change behavior and, and realize that uh, we deserve better than this because that was not a good show. You today followed up that tweet by sending out a, a, a letter 
uh, by the National Institute for Civil Discourse, which I think is based in Arizona. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the Institute? Um, and then more importantly, other than kind of counting on the participants to police themselves, which doesn't seem like a hopeful course of action, uh, what we might do to better civil discourse in the United States or globally for that matter, given the United States role as a leader. Right. Well, the National Center for, uh, um, or National Institute for Civil Discourse was started after my, my friend and colleague, uh, Gabby Giffords was shot. Um, a number of people came together and said, you know, we need a better discourse. We need to behave differently. And, uh, and let's create an institute uh, that will look forward to, you know, furthering those ends. And so it was created uh, by the University of Arizona. Uh, that's where it's housed. It's headed, uh, the CEO now is Keith Allred, an eminently qualified individuals to, to do this. And he wrote a very, I thought, a thoughtful statement uh, about um, how we ought to behave better than this. And uh, so I, I retweeted it out. And I hope people pay attention to it. Fantastic. Your friendship with Gabby Giffords over the, the years uh, has been actually one of the more inspiring stories in American politics. And I think uh, viewers in Australia will recall some of the, 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 the tales that you recounted uh, while you were here. Uh, for those of you who re remember, when Jeff was in Perth in January, he gave a wonderful uh, speech at, at Government House. Uh, and then thanks to the United States Study Center and Simon and his colleagues, uh, a similar speech at, at the Opera House in, at the, in Sydney. Um, and, and your calls then were, were clearly not heated last night. Um, Garana, if I could turn to you, um, uh, you've spent a lot of time looking at political developments in the United States recently from an Australian perspective, but from a broader international perspective. Would you, would you discuss how that debate was seen internationally uh, and what implications that might have for Australia? Sure. Thank you, Gordon. Um, well, I think for most of us, it was the uh, Kind of the first reaction was disbelief and then um, probably you know uh, hours of of decompressing from what we witnessed in those um, 90 minutes but um, it's been really interesting to look at the coverage uh, abroad of the debate where you know in uh, allied and partner countries there is this sort of mix of pity and uh, schadenfreude almost uh, depending on where you are um, whether you are more pro-american or, or anti-american but for compared editors and rivals of the United States, this is just another piece of evidence that democratic system is messy, that uh, it's failing, that it produces chaos, and I think it hurts ultimately um, this greater cause of, of America's global image, which we have to understand hasn't been faring all that great. If you, th if you think about the most recent uh, Pew uh, opinion poll of uh, some dozen or so leading democracies uh, that showed results that ought to be sobering for uh, American politicians across the board. So um, America's global image is now at all time lows um, in the two decades or so that Pew has been conducting this survey. And um, I think that obviously what's gone on um, at the debate hasn't helped to uh, make people uh, change their opinion. If anything, uh, as I said, there is a, a lot of uh, the, the kind of general commentary of how chaotic things are uh, at the moment. And this sort of idea that there are basically two Americas that are uh, shouting um, at each other. Uh, Garana, about a month ago, shortly after the Democratic Convention, uh, right after um, Joe Biden gave his speech, you were on Sky News, and, and, and I recall that your, your reaction was to suggest that then Vice President Biden, in accepting the nomination, his speech was a rebuke of Trump's vision for America. Um, but that seems to have been subsumed in the debate last night. Uh, is there internationally a... a, a remaining kind of positive narrative or positive vision about the United States right now? Well, I think there are a lot of hopes, again, depending on who you ask, but there are a lot of hopes from those that have been America's friends that um, 
what Joe Biden famously said at one of those Munich security conferences, you know, that America will be back, that this will uh, come true. But obviously we know that in, in the four years of uh, Trump administration, the world has changed uh, quite drastically. And some of the things have, uh, those negative developments might have actually been uh, further accelerated, particularly uh, in the wake of uh, the pandemic. But there is certainly a lot of hope that uh, there will be a course correction should there be a new president um, in the White House on January 20th. Um, but uh, in terms of the messaging and, and in terms of the substance, I think that it was quite clear that Joe Biden uh, was trying to, to stay on course and, and uh, make a case for the return to normalcy and for building bridges rather than uh, building walls. No, thank you. Simon, let me, let me turn to you for the, you know, discussion of what the impact of that was. Uh, you, again, uh, we were talking earlier this week with, with Charlie Cook. Uh, you follow the polls closer than most. What, what do you think the impact of the debate was on, on, on the race? Um, and um, how do you understand it in this context right now? Yeah, sure. Um, on the polls, look, we just haven't had a, a lot come back since the debate yet and and historically i mean these the debate got a lot of first-hand viewing the numbers are, are just crazy high in terms of the viewership but often the political effects of these things take a little while uh to work their way through not just because polls take a while to get out in the field and come back but but also because it's the second order effects of it's it's, it's the messaging around the debate itself um what what commentators are saying about it, what, what things are being cut out of it for social media and things like that. And so that, that is taking a little while to settle. But the, the ex-ante, Gordon, um, we came into this debate with what? Um, Trump trailing pretty badly in, in national polls, at least, and in many of the key battlegrounds as well. But as something that Charlie Cook pointed out in the webinar we did with him, and something I've been paying a lot of attention to as well, and that is the low number of undecided voters um, that seem to be up for grabs um, at, at this part of the cycle. And the key thing is, that did people move back to undecided as a result of that? And, I, you know, it, we will see is the answer. Now, my supposition is, is no, um, because so little has moved the dial thus far over the course of the, of the Trump presidency. I think very quickly um, people figured out whether they were going to vote for a second term of Trump or not. I think that, that question got answered for, for many, many voters a long time ago. Um, and moreover, was that debate performance one that was going to make inroads into constituencies where Donald Trump, all the available polling suggests, has lost ground since the 2016 election? So among women, among college-educated suburban dwellers, um, among constituencies like that, that we know, at least the polls tell us, have, have shifted away from Trump since 2016. Was that the sort of performance that is going to give them a reason to come back? Is that the sort of performance that threw a big, bright spotlight onto Joe Biden as being up for the job? Trump sort of made the show about himself yet again. And, and, um, and so I'm not sure the debate performance from Trump's perspective as an incumbent president with 35 days or whatever it is to go, trailing nationally by six, seven, eight points, did he do what he needed to do um, other than do what he's done such a great job of appealing to 35, 40% of the electorate? Um, I'm not sure his performance was a good fit, suffice to say, to the political task as I see it uh, in front of him uh, at this stage. Well, put simply, in, in a debate where there's no winners, ultimately the loser is the one who needed to win. Uh, and so if, if you're in a situation where it was President Trump who needed to change the narrative, who needed to expand what you described as an extremely robust base, um, that was something that he clearly failed to do in the first one. For all the, the various snap polls that came out shortly thereafterwards, um, and there's a range of them, uh, I think it's less interesting to ask the question, who won the debate? Because again, as Senator Flames yeah. noted, there really was no winner in that process. Yeah. Yeah. But the interesting yeah. one was done by CBS, where they asked the, the simple three-part question, did the debate make you more likely, less likely, or no change to vote for Joe Biden and Donald Trump? And in those three questions, Biden, you know, not stellar performance, but ended up a positive, you know, over, 
above water, point six per, uh, plus six percent, and President Trump was underwater, you know, minus sixteen percent. And so that was probably most telling, and that that, that highlights the challenge. Well, we're going to come back to the election in just a minute, but I, I can't um, help but turn now to the to the question of the Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Flake, this is something that you, having sat on the Senate Judiciary Committee with our intimately familiar with on a personal level. You personally lived through a lot of the last decade of, of drama uh, regarding the highest court in the land of the United States and, and the focal point of, of some of the most difficult political decisions uh, that are made in the United States from the, the nom failed nomination of Merrick Garland to the, you know, the very highly contested nomination of, of Brett Kavanaugh uh, and ultimately his confirmation. Uh, I think that probably puts you in a, a rather unique position. You might be having flashbacks and may not want to go through this again. But now that we've had, the, a lot, Gordon. Yeah, yeah. We, we want to bring a little bit of joy from Australia to it. But, but as you put might have right back, there's put me right back in that elevator. Intense interest and right. You, you probably don't want you know the the defining image of of your political career to be you in an elevator. But that does highlight the intense interest. Uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, could you address kind of where we stand? You, you sent out a beautiful tribute after the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, but we, we've now moved on to that and we're in the throes of uh, what will be a difficult period in, in the next 32 days. So. Well, you're right. This is exactly uh, two years uh, from the date of the Kavanaugh hearings, which were just, uh, uh, I don't know what to say about it, uh, just but a defining moment. Uh, certainly in American history and certainly in my own uh, career in the Senate. Uh, but I, I have to admit, when I, when I heard the, the news that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed, I thought, boy, this is the, the October surprise yeah. and that this could really tilt the election. Um, that has faded uh, in terms of the electoral impact, I believe, uh, partly because it seems to be a, a done deal. Um, I my own view is that uh, Republicans should have waited. I, I worry about the knock-on effects, uh, the escalation. Um, if uh, Democrats feel that uh, uh, they were wrong, that if they take control of the Senate and have the presidency, would be more likely to escalate, to perhaps uh, get rid of the filibuster. Some senators have already talked about uh, stacking the court. That would not be good uh, for any party, uh, certainly not uh, the country as a whole. Uh, so I do worry about that. And I don't think we Republicans drew any distinction um, in 2016 when we said we're going to hold Merrick Garland's uh, nomination as to you know who controls the Senate, who controls the presidency. We simply said the next president should decide. Republicans are certainly within their rights uh, to move forward with the nomination. I just question the wisdom of it. But uh, they have, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, is eminently qualified. Uh, I, I think it's most likely that she will be confirmed just before the election, uh, but if not just before, then soon after. And I, 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 I've come to uh, think that it probably won't have the impact I first thought it would. Um, and uh, so uh, if there's a, another October surprise coming, <laughs> it's got to be something else because I don't think this is it. Um, Rick Wilson, who's a you know, longtime Republican strategist and media man who's now intimately involved with the Lincoln Project, for, for the last year has been talking about what he calls judicial fetishism among, among the conservative part of the spectrum in particular with the heavy folks on the court. And, and we heard that during the debate, President Trump talking about the, the, the record number of judges he's appointed and obviously right. the importance of the, the Supreme Court. Could you help our Australian audience understand that? Uh, I, I think we'd be hard pressed to find uh, any Australians on the street that could name you know, members of the high court here in Australia or the chief justice of the high court here. Uh, it's, it's a very different debate. Uh, and obviously having come from the Republican party, uh, you're familiar with that. So help us understand why this is such a touchstone issue. Well, it, it, it's become uh, all the more important. It's, it's always been, uh, you know, we have separation of powers and certainly uh, uh, judicial branch is an important part of that. But uh, we've given it far too much credence, uh, the Congress has, 
by simply uh, not doing its job and and leaving, uh, you know, uh, leaving the job of legislating, uh, relying on the administration uh, through executive orders and other measures uh, to implement policy that the court has to interpret um, or play referee on. And we kind of remove ourselves from the equation. So we've given the court uh, far too much prominence uh, by our inaction. Uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, uh, Ben Sass, my colleague, uh, Senator from Nebraska, gave a, a very eloquent uh, uh, a speech um, on this uh, right during the, the Kavanaugh hearings. We're talking about, as conservatives in particular, uh, we shouldn't, uh, we should more jealously guard our legislative prerogative. And instead, we've imbued the courts with far too much power. Um, but that has been the drift, uh, not only power away from the legislative branch to the executive branch, but to the judicial branch as well. So it, it, it does have far more importance than it should, um, although uh, obviously uh, judicial branch is pretty important. Uh, one final question on this before we move on. Uh, in your years in the Senate, uh, and obviously in, in the years since, as you continue to comment on that, even in what you've said, you, you come across as an institutionalist. Uh, so you, you know, you question the wisdom of moving forward because of its right. impacts on the institution. So uh, now, given your apparent conclusion that it's likely to just march forward, re regardless of the, the relatively short period of time, what do you think the impact will be? Uh, it, 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 what is the impact on the Senate as an institution? What will the impact be on U.S. politics? Well, the, the impact over the past couple of decades uh, with getting ready, rid of the filibuster as it pertains to the president's executive calendar, which includes his uh, court nominees, uh, has, has led to uh, uh, each party feeling that uh, they can't name somebody down the middle that has consensus support, or even somebody who leans their direction, uh, they need to name somebody who is a strong, stalwart, either conservative or progressive. And so uh, you, you end up uh, just kind of lurching back and forth between majorities uh, rather than having a more consensus policy. Mm -hmm. And then that's just not a healthy place to be in. Um, and and we're, we're seeing that on the courts. We may well see it bleed into uh, legislative matters. If we get rid of the legislative filibuster, for example, then it'll be much more likely that uh, we're already kind of entering this trend, but uh, we'll further entrench ourselves in it where uh, one majority will simply realize that their majority won't last because they'll probably overreach but they want to enact as strong a policy as they can and then hold power as long as you can, knowing that the next majority to come in will try to reverse what you did. Mm -hmm. And so we, we just lurch back and forth uh, from extreme to extreme, um, both in how we view and utilize the judiciary uh, or how we appoint judges as well as legislation. And then, and that just hasn't been the typical role of the Senate. The Senate has been, as George Washington described it, you know, the saucer that cools the milk. And, uh, and, 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 and that's, you know, we're moving way away from that. And that's, uh, that's not good for the institution and certainly not good for the country. Well, we could, we could spend the rest of the hour talking longer term uh, about uh, democracy, not just in the United States, but globally and the strength or relative weakness of institutions. But there, there's obviously something that's got to happen first, uh, uh, and that is 32 days from now, Americans will go to the polls. In fact, many of them already are going to the polls. I'd like to kind of turn and spend some time talking about the state of the race, where things stand, where, where we think they're likely to go. And Simon, I might kind of start off with you. Um, um, again, following that excellent and rather optimistic from my perspective, program that you did with Charlie Cook, yeah. Um, what is the state of the race? Where are we 32 days out? Uh, and what is your expectations for the next month? Well, as I said earlier, Gordon, um, um, very few number of undecided voters. We'll see if the debate shook that up at all. Uh, there's a chance it might have. Um, one thing I'll be looking at this batch of polls we'll get over the next three or four days or so to parse that very carefully on. But right now, on its face, at least, um, you'd say Joe Biden is headed for a pretty comfortable win. Now, one of the exercises we've been engaged in here at the U.S. Study Center is uh, with 
you know, with tractor tire marks on our backs from looking at the polling in 16, we've been taking sort of a worst case sort of analysis lens to this, to the current batch of swing state polling. If the errors in swing state polling were as large as they were in 2016, if those errors are still there in 2020, um, what is sort of that recalibrated shape of the race? And even if you do that, you still see Biden um, winning. Um, a few states that where he appears to be in front, you'd say actually his leads are smaller than the poll error at a comparable stage of the race in 16. And so Ohio, where Biden has a small lead right now, um, you'd, you'd give that back to Trump. And there's a few other states like that, um, um, Michigan being another one um, uh, where the poll error was very large. Wisconsin being another one where the poll error was very large. But there's just not enough states that fall into that bucket to say that the polls, if you think 16 is the worst case, case for poll error, um, uh, there's not enough states where uh, th those errors are so large as to overwhelm what looks like a, a pretty comfortable Biden lead. So that's one lens we've been applying to this. And, and just channeling Charlie Cook again, Charlie Cook sort of said to us, hey, um, this isn't a close election. Um, this, I know everybody's gun shy about 2016, but the pollsters, or at least enough of them, have learned their lesson. Um, turnout is going to be through the roof. Um, and look at the 2018 midterm as exhibit A for that. And if you can get past the, the shock <laughs> that collectively, those of us in the more data-facing sides of analysis of US politics experience up to 16, this is just not a close election. Um, um, and so the only other thing, and I'd be delighted, you know, great to hear Senator Flake's take on this, is the, the, are we outside what might be called euphemistically the margin of litigation? And, and that is, is there, will the result be so overwhelming if in the Charlie Cook view of this election at least, and, and in, on election night or very soon thereafter, that any room for some of the things the president is talking about, about um, challenging the validity of mail ballots and whatnot, um, that, um, that we could even, if, if that's another source of a potential sort of thing that's going to confound us between where the polls are now and what the final result might be, um, are we even outside that margin? So the polls being potentially wrong, there being room for the results to change, perhaps a little due to litigating the validity of mail ballots and whatnot. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, if you put those two together, I think you start to get to a place where perhaps the result is uncertain, but, um, but at least at this point, um, again, channeling Charlie Cook, um, if there were any one other than Donald Trump and anything other than, you know, four years after 2016, you would say this is not a close election. Senator Flake, you've obviously had to look at polls from the other side. Um, um, how, how do you see the state of play? Well, I, I think obviously it's uh, Biden's to lose right now. Um, as uh, Simon just said, uh, very eloquently, this, this just, uh, it isn't close right now. And even if you assume that the polls were off as much or multiples uh, what they were last time, it still uh, looks toward a, a Biden victory. A lot will turn uh, on turnout, obviously. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, Democratic ballots, you just take Arizona, for example, my own Senate race on election night, uh, you know, I had a, a comfortable five point victory uh, by midnight on election night. Uh, my Democratic opponent called and conceded. Uh, within 24 hours, he wished he hadn't called and conceded because when the mail-in ballots came in, um, he gained ground. And uh, I ended up winning by 3.5% rather than five. It, it shifted significantly. And I think you'll see that not just in states like Arizona, but anywhere that has mail-in ballots. I think most of the Democratic uh, you know, vote will come in later. And that presents a bit of a problem in perception. Uh, but, but let me just uh, address one thing that, uh, uh, you know, is on top of a lot of people's minds when the president talks about needing, uh, you know, a full court, uh, nine people in, in order to, uh, you know, uh, ref the election. Uh, some people might think that, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court or other federal judges uh, who were appointed by the president uh, will come to the president's rescue somehow. And I can tell you that will not happen. 
uh, I know of no judge at any level uh, who would, if the president has genuinely lost an election, uh, try to tilt it in his favor. And uh, by the same token, uh, uh, people will say, well, well, Republican members of Congress uh, somehow, will the legislative branch try to weigh in uh, Republicans uh, where they're in charge in the president's favor? And I can tell you again, uh, while there is great fear uh, you know, of the president and, and his control uh, of the Republican base, uh, there's no great love uh, for the president um, and his agenda. And uh, uh, my former colleagues know the score as to where uh, Trumpism, I guess, is taking the party. Uh, Trumpism, if you will, uh, at uh, the brand of Republicanism. So there, if the president has genuinely lost the election, he's not going to receive help from institutions in Washington uh, that, that perhaps he is hoping or counting on. Uh, because they just won't be there for him. I wonder if I might ask you to sp talk a little bit further about the importance of the margin. You know, uh, Simon talked about it not just being beyond the margin of error, but the margin of litigation. Uh, three months ago, we had your friend and former colleague, uh, Mia Love, former Republican congressman from Utah, woman from Utah, but also a visiting fellow at the United States Studies Center. Uh, and, and she voiced her concern about the closeness of the election. The closer it was, the more likely there was to be violence and disputes and further divide. Obviously, the larger the margin, yeah. uh, the more likely there would be to be you know, some type of comity or, or reconciliation. Um, one, how important do you see that? And two, how likely do you see us being able to move forward beyond this rather than to go into even further uh, divide? Well, if you want my own view of, about the, the, the optimal scenario for Republicans uh, to be able to move on um, and the country to be able to move on, it would be a decisive victory uh, uh, by Joe Biden and for enough of the, the Republican base to realize, you know, we went down a bad detour um, four years ago and we can't continue this. Obviously, a, a, you know, a landslide or a decisive victory would lend itself more to that. But more than that, uh, I think what would also help in my own view is for uh, Republicans to maintain control of the Senate. Uh, not that we deserve to, but, uh, but to have divided government, uh, to quell concerns that a progressive base on the Democratic side would push Joe Biden uh, into positions that he doesn't want to take. Um, and that I, I think if Republicans are shut out of both chambers in the White House, there's less incentive to act responsibly and to move forward with a governing agenda, a real agenda. And so I, I, I kind of have my own scenarios as to what I think would be best as far as the country to move on. And as a conservative and a Republican, uh, best ways to reclaim the principles that have animated the party uh, successfully for, uh, for decades. Uh, but in terms of, uh, uh, is there a concern that there might be violence or, or uh, you know, reaction across the country if it's a very close election. Uh, yeah, I do have those concerns. Uh, like I said, not, not because institutions in Washington, whether it's uh, the, the legislature or the courts or the military uh, or others would side if the president hasn't genuinely won or lost. Uh, but I do, when you look at what is happening across the country in terms of rioting and uh, knowing how fervently uh, some of the president's base feel about him and as well as how they feel about the left, uh, then I am concerned that a close election might uh, prompt some of that. Thank you. Garana, I'd like to get your, your insights on this. Um, how do you see it? And more importantly, um, we, we started out talking about the debates, which obviously, you know, tends to, to set the tone for the discussion about the U.S. election. But is there a a growing recognition in Australia or more broadly of what Simon was talking about or what Senator Flight was talking about in terms of where it is? Or is there just a general gloom and doom? Uh, is 2016 all over again? Trump's going to win. Well, there, I mean, yeah, the kind of spectrum goes from, um, I would absolutely for a second, uh, what, what we've heard that, that kind of the spectrum goes from the Charlie Cook, um, you know, exuberance and optimism over a landslide to the kind of David Kilcullen view of uh, political violence on the streets, um, particularly if uh, the results 
are uncertain and if that uncertainty uh, continues for some time. Um, I would say that for me, maybe, you know, in 32 days leading up to the election, what's really um, interesting is that none of the kind of once in a lifetime events that have taken place over the past what, 10 months now uh, from impeachment, from pandemic, from economic collapse, from the uh, biggest protests for racial justice has been able to append the trajectory of the race or the opinions of the president. So uh, Donald Trump's approval ratings are at the same or about the same level where they were uh, in the beginning of the year. Um, and um, we just see some of these kind of focusing events maybe changing the agenda of coverage and of analysis of uh, the race. So, you know, the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg obviously shifted that whole focus onto the Supreme Court vacancy. This week it's all about the first debate, but next week probably as we get closer to the hearings in the Senate, it's going to be again back to uh, the uh, um, nomination for the Supreme Court vacancy. So really it, it is down to um, how this pans out at the electoral college level, uh, seeing how the turnout uh, will be affected by the pandemic, by some of the voting restrictions, um, the number of mailing ballots. We have to remember that obviously a lot of Americans, we passed already the, uh, the threshold of uh, 1 million, I believe, that have already voted, that have sent their votes in. So in many places, actually, in the United States, for, for a lot of people, the race is already kind of over, if you think about that. And November 3 is basically just a deadline uh, to to do that. So um, I think for, for uh, the time being, it's just this sense that we are part of this spectacle now that is going to just keep on uh, intensifying. And obviously, October is a month of surprises, but we hope that um, at least, you know, there, there will be far and, and few uh, in between rather than every, every day being kind of a, a source of, uh, of yet another kind of shift in, in focus. And I would say that in some of our previous webinars uh, from the U.S. Study Center, um, there's been this uh, sentiment that actually the more that there are those sort of uh, things that deflect from President Trump's mishandling of the pandemic that's still very much happening in the United States and that's actually increasing in a, in a, a majority of states now, given the uh, some of the latest data might be actually a good thing for him because it doesn't necessarily put that uh, big question of his leadership in crisis on, on the agenda, but rather um, serves as a distraction. So one would, would, would hope that, I mean, we've actually gone, it was probably a record for, for the last six months. We've gone 40 minutes into this conversation. We've hardly mentioned COVID. Right? Uh, and, and today, I been, and you said, right? But it's been one of those issues where the president hasn't been able to dog it. I anticipate, you know, I, I, Jeff mentioned he's currently in, in Utah right now. I saw the, the data today that there was 1,008 new cases just today in that state, you know, a state with about the same population as Melbourne. Uh, and that would be in the peak of Victoria, right? Uh, um, in terms of their response, in terms of how quickly they had to turn around and get back. So really interesting dynamic there. Uh, look, um, we have a, a long list of questions that are coming in live uh, and, and many who registered in advance submitted questions first. Let me, let me turn with a question to, to you, Jeff, and kind of buy a couple of them. When you were here in January, you, you spoke a lot about the, the future of the Republican Party, the future of conservatism. My guess is that the concerns that you voiced in January have only heightened in the last 10 months. Mm -hmm. um, but there are two specific questions, and I'll group them together. One comes from Jim Caruso, former acting ambassador here in, in, um, in Canberra for the United States, who's now a managing director of the Bauer Group Asia. He says, President Reagan often would say government was the problem. Can the GOP change that narrative to restore trust between society and government? And also another question out of Singapore, Malcolm Cook, senior fellow at the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies there says, you know, where do you think the Republican Party will go post-Trump? Uh, so again, topic you're, you're familiar with, you get asked a lot, but I think we must have had 15 different questions all about whether conservatism 
whether the Republican Party. Uh, well, I don't know where to start uh, there, but I, I have been doing a lot of thinking about it, and so have uh, uh, many of my colleagues. Um, obviously, uh, you know, conservatives uh, obviously have a lot of affinity for Ronald Reagan and his statement uh, that government is a problem, but uh, we're also institutionalists. We want to conserve and preserve uh, uh, those of us who are Burkean style uh, conservatives, at least. Uh, want to hold fast to that which works and the institutions of government, uh, you know, separation of powers, um, independent uh, judiciary, uh, freedom of the press, uh, you know, th those things work. And, and that's what's been difficult to watch is uh, to see uh, those things eroded uh, by so-called conservative party and a so-called conservative president. So, uh, where we go from here, a lot will depend on how the election shakes out. If there is a decisive uh, loss by Republicans, you know, nothing focuses the mind like a big election loss. Um, that, that is normally the case. Uh, we, we thought we had reached that in 2012 after the Mitt Romney loss. We conducted an autopsy and concluded that the party needed to appeal to a broader electorate. Uh, two months later, we were chasing a populist. <laughs> and so uh, that one didn't last very long. But I, I do think that, uh, that this is certainly more substantial. We've gone uh, so far off the rails, if you will, uh, in terms of what constitutes conservatism. Um, you know, it's really been limited government, uh, free trade, strong American leadership uh, around the globe, uh, and None of those things uh, are emblematic of what we see today uh, among Republicans or those supporting kind of the Trumpian style. Uh, so I, I, I know that uh, if, if President Trump is not, a, you know, not president anymore, there is going to be an accounting. We have to say, you know, where do we go? And will the base come with us? Uh, for those in elected office, uh, I, I can tell you, they know, they know the score. They know that there is no future. Uh, what we're in now is kind of a demographic cul-de-sac. Um, but, uh, but the question is, will the base come with us? Um, or will the base want to uh, still follow Donald Trump or his acolytes or, or others? And we just don't know that yet. Um, like I said, if it's a decisive election loss, um, then it'll be easier to do that, but uh, certainly no guarantee. We've got to also look uh, down ballot as well. Uh, the Republican Party has really been decimated uh, in just the midterms and special elections and what looks to be even worse, uh, you know, coming up in November. Uh, not only did we lose the House of Representatives, um, we stand to lose the U.S. Senate. Uh, we've lost seven governorships six chambers nationally, and more than 300 legislative seats uh, nationwide. So it, it's, it's been a, a washout. Um, and there, there is, I think, a realization among at least elected officials that whether the base is there, we just don't know yet. Gordon. Yeah, go ahead, Gerana. If I may, um, just because I, I thought of, of something, um, given that I'm teaching a foreign policy, uh, sorry, po US politics class this semester, but foreign policy for um, undergrads and, and uh, postgrads, um, just a couple of weeks ago, had to read a bit more on the Nixon presidency and its legacy. Um, and what struck me uh, was just this general um, agreement in, in a lot of texts that we've read about the post-Watergate era is that um, even though obviously the, the scandal involved the Republican president, the general trends actually bolstered conservatives because the ultimate lesson of Watergate was one that you can't trust the government, right? And we know that obviously not just in the United States, but also around the world, the levels of trust in governments are at their uh, very, very low levels, if not historic low 
flows in some places around Western democracies, which is obviously what precipitated the rise of, uh, or, or went hand in hand with the rise of, of uh, various populist politicians. So, um, you know, even President Carter represented a more conservative faction of the Democratic Party, one that was Southern, more fiscally responsible, suspicious of labor unions, etc. So it just um, made me think as well, um, as we were reading that, um, you know, the demographic trends are certainly not working in Republican Party's favor, but maybe uh, the, just that uh, conservatism um, might still uh, uh, benefit maybe down the line uh, from, from some of the, the kind of legacy of, of that um, don't trust the government um, sentiment. For those of you that don't know, Senator Flake actually wrote a book called Conscience of a Conservative. I think it's probably still available uh, online. But uh, Jeff, I wonder if you might address what it seems to me is a real tension that Garana has identified. You, 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 in answering the question about the role of government, right, um, you know, indicated that to be a conservative, you could also be an institutionalist and care about institutions. But it does seem to me that there are strains of conservatism, one of which is tearing down institutions, tearing down authority. And that seems to be on the rise right now. Is there such a tension? Uh, and, and what needs to happen to, to strengthen a brand of conservatism that believes in supporting and building institutions? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good, uh, it's a bit of a paradox, but uh, as, as conservatives, uh, one of the central tenets of conservatism is skepticism of concentrated authority, uh, particularly in the executive branch. That's what uh, Republicans have always, uh, or I'm sorry, conservatives have always kind of feared and fought against, uh, but yet uh, we've seen uh, since President Trump was elected uh, a concentration of uh, authority in the executive branch. Um, only I can fix it uh, kind of thing. And, uh, and so it, it really has run counter to conservative thought. Uh, Republicans, uh, when I say we're institutionalists, uh, we're more, uh, you know, we want to preserve what we know works and, and, and uh, by, um, I guess, uh, spreading authority <laughs> out, particularly in the legislative branch. It's the Article I branch that we believe so much in. But, uh, but that does not uh, explain very well uh, the Republican or conservative embrace of President Trump because uh, he is anything but conservative in terms of how he views institutions and how he views concentrated power. So there is a bit of a paradox. I just uh, hope that we can get beyond it and get back to the more traditional uh, conservative thought. Simon, I want to bring you in on this, but let me, let me ask another question to the senator that I think you can chime in as well. Uh, a month ago, when, when Simon and his team, um, uh, together with our team, brought in John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor to the President, and you know, he had a best-selling book, The Room Where It Happened, uh, we actually used you as a bit of a, a, a cudgel that we bludgeoned with, because you know, he laid out in his hour-long presentation to us and in great detail in his book, why he thought the president was in, you know, a, a grave and serious danger to the country, to our institutions, and to the world. But he wouldn't go that next step. He would just say, "I will not be voting for uh, um, President Trump." You've you've gone a step further. You know, you made a decision that it wasn't enough just to abstain, and you've come out and publicly endorsed, you know, probably for the first time in your life a Democrat for, for president of the United States. Would you kind of walk us through that choice, but what that means for the future post-election of the Republican Party? Because they're two very different choices, right? Yeah, I, you know, last time I, I couldn't vote for uh, President Trump, but uh, I couldn't bring myself to vote for the Democrat either. And uh, along with many of my colleagues, you know, Mitt, Mitt Romney is, Confess, I think he wrote his wife's name in. Uh, I voted for Evan McMullen, who was on the ballot uh, in Arizona. Uh, but but this time, uh, you know, I've been saying for years when people ask, uh, you know, could you vote for a Democrat? I've I voted for Democrats in the past, just not for president. Uh, but I've supported Democrats at the national level, like Doug Jones over Roy Moore in Alabama, for example, uh, or others. But uh, But with regard to voting for president, I, I've been saying for years, 
I could vote for a Democrat if it were a Joe Biden kind of Democrat. <laughs> and, uh, and then the Democrats nominated Joe Biden. Um, and and uh, so I felt obligated. And now it's it more than that. I felt that I couldn't just register disapproval of the president. Uh, I needed to help elect somebody in his stead. And, and I think that, that that's important for Republicans. And, and I mentioned when I announced that I would support Joe Biden, I'm not pretending that he is a conservative in many ways that we view conservatism, uh, you know, respect for limited government or the, uh, some of the social issues. Uh, he's not uh, a conservative, but he is far more conservative than the president in his respect for institutions and preserving and, and conserving uh, institutions that we know work. And that's part of conservatism. Uh, like I said, the Burkean kind of uh, prudence and temperance, uh, that kind of conservatism, he's far more. And, and uh, more than that, he's simply a good and decent man. And, uh, and that uh, says, says more than I ever thought it would uh, at this point in our political life. Oh, thank you. Simon, uh, can you take a look at that broad sweep that we, we've kind of hoisted upon the senator alone for the last... Yeah, make, make sense of it, Simon, please. Oh, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was going to take issue with your question earlier, Gordon. Um, um, I don't think there's anything conservative about Donald Trump's um, uh, assault on institutions, if you will. Um, I think that's populism. Um, yeah. and, I, and, we, and we call that for what it is. Um, yeah. Whereas I think, I think I think Jeff very very articulately, and has referenced um, Edmund Burke twice now. I, th I think it, it's it's understanding, and this is the great struggle of American politics. Um, this toing and froing, and um, about finding that balance that that's encoded, if you will, in in the, in the founding documents. But as it plays out over hundreds of years of history, we we find ourselves. You know, have we have we overcooked um, limited government and hostility to those institutions of the state? And I think some of those chickens have come home to roost in the midst of this great national crisis, uh, this 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 uh, pandemic, um, where I think a, a deeply decentralized United States by design was perhaps always going to struggle, um, and with this sort of cultural embrace of individual liberty and. Um, whereas I think a country like Australia is much more willing to accept hard borders between states and restrictions on, and, and a much more activist role from the state. Um, um, but, but I think you overlay on that um, where um, perhaps this particular moment and this particular president and his, 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 uh, his background and his, his mindset towards as a, as, as a sort of a disruptor and running against Washington, perhaps way harder and, and fun, qualitatively different in the way I think Ronald Reagan was talking about. Um, I think I think we start to see um, so the limits of that and 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 the tide. I think as indicated by the polls, um, wanting a change in direction. Um, can I, Gordon? Can I ask a question of the senator before we of just um, Jeff? Um, just. You know, you served on the council for, uh, sorry, the council, on the committee of foreign relations, not CFR difference. <laughs> um, 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 so many of us in Australia are wondering, it, no matter if it's a second Trump administration or as the polls might indicate, a Biden administration, the, the policy agenda is blinking red all over the place. I just talked about the profound challenge that COVID presents to the United States. But many in Australia and allies around the world are wondering at what pace would you anticipate, say, if it is a Biden administration, the ability of, you know, sort of a bit of a reset in foreign relations. Charlie Cook said if, if Biden could, he would, he would, you know, fly Air Force One into the ground going around the world um, trying to reestablish some normalcy in America's uh, dealings with allies and partners. But there's yeah. just so much in the domestic agenda, uh, moreover, the, the likely vice president, um, you know, Kamala Harris, has not, is not like an experienced foreign policy right. hand. Just wondering if you could give us a sense of that. You were in politics when Obama came to power, how and in, in 08, you're in the House then, but, um, but how quickly, you know, your sense of when, when government does change in, in DC, but perhaps under these unusual circumstances, the pace at which 
the rest of the world might expect to see um, a change in, in policy, particularly in, in foreign relations. Well, I do think a Biden administration would find that a priority. Uh, I can tell you that my last uh, uh, two years, uh, the entire time of the Trump administration that I was in the Senate, uh, part of that time was uh, with John McCain, um, traveling uh, to many places around the globe, just to remind our allies that they're still our allies. And, uh, and uh, Senator McCain certainly took that upon himself and it was uh, much needed and appreciated, I think, around the world. Uh, we haven't seen much of that in the last two years and there hasn't been any, tr any travel from the United States other than the Secretary of State, I think. Um, and so I, I do think that, that that will be a big priority. There is gonna be a bandwidth issue, obviously. Uh, Kamala Harris is not uh, known for her foreign policy acumen, but, uh, but she's, she's capable. Uh, but I, I do think uh, Joe Biden, certainly having been uh, in Washington as long as he has, and uh, uh, with uh, a lot of Joe Biden alumni out there uh, who have worked with him, uh, either in the previous administration or uh, during his time in the Senate, uh, there will be a good group of people uh, to move forward that international agenda. And by golly, it's needed, uh, as Garana was, was talking about, uh, you know, how we are viewed around the world. Um, that, that Pew Research poll um, showing that, uh, that more people trust uh, the word of Putin or Xi, uh, you know, more so than our own president was, was pretty humbling. And so I, I do think that uh, there will be, you know, a lot of polls on a new president, but, uh, but you know, reestablishing relationships and alliances uh, is going to be uh, right there at the top for Joe Biden if he's elected. If I can add just a tiny bit of optimism on that very topic. Um, uh, it's important to remember that the vast majority of what you would consider the Republican foreign policy establishment has not gone away, never disappeared. And, and even as early as 2016, signed on to a, a series of never Trump letters. Uh, there's another group of them, you know, a month ago, that 70 former national security advisors to the Republicans who've, who signed on for this election. Again, that number is, it continues to expand on a daily basis. I think it's approaching 150 of them have written a letter saying it's important for the country to make that choice. The same one that senators made. Uh, but what that means in this question is that when it comes to then reestablishing alliances, normally, you know, you know, and what, we had this in 2008, after Obama had won, you had a lot of sniping uh, on a partisan level on the other side, attempting to undermine him and his team kind of internationally. Uh, I think we might have an opportunity to return to the era where politics stops at the border's edge, right? Because what you're going to see is you know, the vast majority of the Republican foreign policy establishment, which did not support Trump, which has not supported him, will be wholeheartedly behind Vice President Biden. Uh, and that, you know, that's a that's an optimistic hope. It's a good way for me to wrap up. Jeff, I don't know if you agree with that, but. I do, I do. And you've seen already uh, so many uh, sign on um, or at least express uh, their, uh, uh, their support for a change in policy. So yeah, I do agree with that. Look, we're almost out of time. Uh, and, and there are, I think by count, I think 50 odd questions that have come in um, um, yeah, for the Senator. I think just hearing Jeff's calm voice is such a sharp contrast to the debate that we started talking about. Uh, a, a number of the people who are watching right now have expressed the fact they feel a little bit more positive for the future. So if nothing else, thank you, Jeff, for this counseling session from all the way from far off the United States. I, I want to wrap up with something you said earlier, Jeff. You, you referenced a, a phenomenon in U.S. politics that's called the October Surprise. And it's under the presumption that the leader in the White House can change the agenda Usually, you know, by starting a war, by attacking another country, by, by, by you know, instigating something. And you suggested that maybe we already had our October surprise in the unfortunate passing of Ruth Bader, uh, the Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, and that that's our focus. Uh, between now and the election, uh, I'm just going to ask the three of you, we'll start with you, Garana, then go to Simon and then Jeff. Is there anything that's on your radar screen that you're worried about? Are there developments that we haven't discussed today? that the viewers today should be paying more attention to over the next 32 days. Irana, to you, just quick short answers if you could. So I don't know if you noticed, Gordon, but our chat box has been firing up with the news that Hope Hicks is in, um, has been confirmed to, to be COVID positive and that uh, allegedly 
president and the first lady have been put into quarantine. So I guess that's another one of the October surprises. Um, but um, in terms of uh, what, what to watch, um, I think just the idea, what's most concerning, the idea of any sort of political violence is something that I am most concerned about, especially with these uh, very uh, uh, unambiguous shout outs to white nationalists and white supremacists like the Proud Boys that we've heard because we know that all political science research shows that when there is uh, legitima legitimization and, and uh, basically condoning of um, hate speech uh, that basically violence ensues. And, and that's something that worries me. But on my personal kind of research interest fronts, I've heard that uh, uh, pulling out of NATO might be an October surprise, even though that uh, would not be possible given the most recent authorization act for defense. But anyway, that's, that's two or three cents for me. Thank you. Simon, to you real quickly and then we'll wrap Nothing up. Nothing to add to that. Garana nailed it. I, please, might we have a free and fair and peaceful and safe election. Thank you. Senator Flake. <laughs> well, I, I just hope that, uh, that we all respect the election outcome and uh, that uh, we don't so fear and try to drive people uh, away from the polls uh, uh, by hinting that, uh, you know, your vote won't be counted. Uh, I hope that uh, we can push through and that we can recognize that uh, the result on election night might not be the final result and we ought to respect the, the vote after all votes are counted. Well, Jeff, uh, we were afraid this time we weren't able to offer you the beautiful beaches of Western Australia or Sydney. <laughs> but uh, on the plus side, you didn't have to fly you know, 25 hours to get here either. So thank you so much for your time, I, for joining us again. I would, I would, let me just tell you, I would love to climb on any plane and fly <laughs> for <laughs> just to, you know, just to get away right now. Like <laughs> so you're suffering a little bit of withdrawal symptoms there. Withdrawal. <laughs> you bet. Uh, on behalf of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, of the Perth US Asia Center, and all of our colleagues, uh, thank you all as an audience for joining us today. Special thanks to Karana for her insights, uh, and especially uh, thanks to Senator Jeff Flake for once again joining us here down under for a discussion of an issue important to and of deep interest to all Australians and people around the world. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Gordon. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah.